0: Good afternoon, and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Tim Lynch. I'm the director of Cato's Project on Criminal Justice. And today, we want to take a closer look at some of the uh, policing issues that have been in the news the past few weeks in light of the events uh, coming from Ferguson, uh, Missouri. We have a first-rate panel uh, for you today to address these issues. But before I introduce our first speaker, I do want to take just a minute or two to lay something of a foundation for the discussion that's going to follow. Uh, There was a hearing on Capitol Hill uh, just yesterday uh, addressing the, the military weaponry that's been flowing from the Pentagon to our local police departments. Uh, over the past few years there's been a lot of coverage on that topic and we're actually begin, going to be having a separate event on Friday that focuses just on that subject um, but for our main focus uh, for today is going to be on uh, everyday police tactics in our cities um, I would remind everybody here that the media did not descend on Ferguson because of the shooting of Michael Brown They descended on Ferguson because of the protests that erupted in the aftermath of that shooting. That's when the media came to Ferguson uh, and they wanted to zero in on the question of why people were protesting. Um, It was partly because of the way in which the police were handling that case, the fact that his body was left in the street for several hours. Um, Also, the police did not release the name of the officer involved. So it was partly about that. But uh, there are other issues as well. Uh, The the reporters talk about the simmering tensions uh, in Ferguson over police tactics. Um, uh, We've heard about the racial composition of the police and the government there that do not come close uh, to reflecting uh, the communities uh, that they are serving. Uh, The fact that cities... uh, In the suburbs uh, around St. Louis, the fact that many of these municipalities depend uh, on the revenue that's generated from uh, petty offenses, uh, fines that some people are calling the criminalization of poverty uh, in in those cities and other places around the country. And beyond Ferguson, uh, there was the choking death of Eric Garner uh, on the sidewalks in in New York City. just happened just about two or three weeks before the shooting of Michael Brown. Um, that is another reason why people were protesting, uh, in Ferguson and in other cities around the country. Um, to get this kind of started with this, more of this broader conversation about, uh, race and policing, I would also point out that some people, um, make the point that, uh, the white middle-class experience with police is very different from, uh, the experience of minorities who live in the poor sections of our cities. Uh, for the white middle class, it's, it's mainly, you know, the occasional speeding ticket or perhaps there's a friend or a relative uh, that gets involved with like a DUI arrest. Um, but for poor minorities, their experience is very different. This is where the stop and frisk tactics uh, come into play and no knock raids on, on apartments and homes. So these are some of the topics we want to explore. Our format is uh, very simple and straightforward. I'm going to introduce each speaker in turn. Uh, Each speaker will talk for about 10 or 15 minutes on the points that they uh, think are most important. And then we're going to open it up and take your questions for about another uh, 10 to 15 minutes. And then we're going to adjourn uh, this session for a reception upstairs. Um, As a courtesy to our speakers, would those of you who brought cell phones, would you please just take a moment now to quickly double check and make sure that they are silenced uh, so that we don't have any interruptions when we get started. Thank you. Our first speaker today is Alice Goffman. Professor Goffman teaches uh, sociology at the University of Wisconsin uh, at Madison. She is also the author of this new book called On the Run, Fugitive Life in an American City. Uh, This book was already getting lots of attention before the unrest in Ferguson uh, last month. Um, I'm going to let her explain her project, but she basically moved into a poor neighborhood in Philadelphia and started recording her observations for about six years as part of her studies at Princeton. She writes that during her first 18 months, at least once a day. Oh,
1: I'm going to say that part of my talk. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean I, I, the one part that I, worry, that I selected? OK. In her first 18 months, once a day, she witnessed a, a police stop, search, uh, the police would run warrants warrant checks and then ask people either to come in for questioning or uh, they would actually make an arrest. And during the same period, she witnessed the police uh, break down doors and search homes 52 times uh, in her first 18 months. And this is just her experience, what she was seeing. So it's just a, a, a snippet of uh, what was going on at, uh in the city. Now, one of the reasons uh, her, we call this field work, what, what she was doing, and one of the reasons her field work is so important is that it shines a light on what we call low visibility police work. You see, we when there are subpoenas, search warrants, arrests, and prosecution, these are all things that like have a paper trail, and we can measure whether they're going up or down. But we can't see uh, police threats. To make arrests, uh, we can't see police threats to seize property, or even threats uh, to seize children and, and, and put them in social services. These are things that uh, that we can't see. Um, so her her, um, her colleagues in uh, her field are already saying that uh, you know her her book is is pathbreaking. And it's going to make a lasting contribution to our understanding of the criminal law, urban life, and race relations. So would you please welcome Alice Goffman.
1: Thank you so much, Tim, for organizing this. Thanks to Cato. Thanks for all of you for coming out tonight. And uh, and to the panelists, it's great to be here with you all. So. Uh, so in my remarks today, I'm going to try to um, put Ferguson into some historical context and a kind of broader context uh, and talk a little bit about the American criminal justice system. And I'm going to be speaking on the basis of about 10 years of research that I've been doing in Philadelphia. So I went to college at the University of Pennsylvania, which is a mostly white campus and student body uh, and pretty wealthy. and. Um, While I was there, I spent most of my time in a working class to poor African-American neighborhood, not far from from that campus. Uh, I began tutoring a young woman uh, who lived in this who was just coming home from juvenile detention. And then he introduced me to his cousin, Mike, uh, who was 22. I was 21 at the time. And we became friends. Mike was uh, part of this group of young men who were... um, trying to make it in the low-wage labor market. They were applying for jobs at Walmart and Kmart and Target, um, and in between they were unemployed. Um, and when they got really strapped for cash, they sold um, like very small amounts of drugs. Um, a lot of his friends had not finished high school. Um, he was the only one uh, in his close group of friends who had finished high school. Um, we spent about, uh, we spent a few months uh, together, and then uh, I asked him if I could write about his life for my senior thesis in the sociology department at Penn? He said, sure. So then I started asking more and more people in the neighborhood, um, his friends and his girlfriend and his mom and her friends. Um, So then I I moved into the neighborhood, and then I spent uh, all of college and then all of graduate school um, shuttling back and forth between this neighborhood of Mike's and Penn's campus and then Princeton's campus. Um, So that's kind of the basis of my comments today. So first, some historical context. So in the past 40 years, we've seen this unprecedented historic expansion in the role of the criminal justice system in American life. Uh, For most of the 20th century, the incarceration rate's really stable. It's very, very flat um, up until the 1970s. Then it steadily starts to rise up, 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 up. Um, uh, The United States currently imprisons five to nine times more people than Western European nations, um, more than any country in the world, in fact, uh, more than our competitors of China and Rwanda. Um, uh, uh, It's grown uh, five times in the past four years. So um, now 3% of uh, American adults uh, in the nation are under correctional supervision. They're either in prison or jail or um, have a pending court case, or they're um, on probation or parole. Um, 2.2 million people in jails and prisons, an additional 4.8 million under probation or parole. In modern history, Only the forced labor camps of the former USSR under Stalin approach this level of penal confinement. So these numbers are staggering, and they are new, and they are unprecedented. Um, But when you look um, at at, uh, different demographic groups in the United States, uh, and you also look by class, uh, they are even more striking. So uh, black people make up 13% of the US population, uh, but account for 37% of the prison population. Uh, For black young men, one in nine are in prison compared to less than 2% of white young men. And these racial differences are reinforced by class differences. So it's really poor young men of color who are being sent to prison at astounding rates. Uh, 60% of young men who uh, did not finish high school uh, will go to prison by their mid-30s. So is this because African-Americans are committing more crime? Uh, Black young men are committing lots of crime. Well, no, actually, it's not. Um, uh, Black people actually use less drugs than white people um, and uh, get arrested more often and then get sentenced for longer. Um, A big chunk of this rise in incarceration uh, came through the drug laws and through the um, disproportionate um, enforcement of those drug laws on certain communities. Uh, Black people are also arrested for violent crime more than white people, um, not because they're committing more violent crime, uh, but because um, a bar fight in a white neighborhood is a bar fight. A bar fight in a black neighborhood is an aggravated assault charge. Um, So so it's not just that uh, black Americans are being um, imprisoned and then returned home with felony convictions more than than whites. it's that we've got this, um, this, this new system, this system of policing and supervision and arrests and warrants um, operating um, in African-American neighborhoods, particularly poor neighborhoods, that's, that's distinct from the, re- the way the rest of us are living, um, the way the rest of the US um, is governed. So beginning in the 1970s, uh, federal and state governments enact a series of laws that increase the penalties for possession, for buying and selling drugs. Uh, steeper sentencing for violent crime. Uh, They ramp up, we ramp up the number of police on the streets and the number of arrests these officers make. So street crime is rising dramatically in the 60s and 70s and politicians on both sides of the aisle see a heavy crackdown on drugs and violence as the political and practical solution. There could have been a lot of solutions uh, to this problem, uh, but this was the solution that we chose. So by the 1980s, you get crack cocaine, which led to waves of crime in poor minority communities that further fueled the putative crime policies begun years earlier. So then in the 1990s, uh, what happens? Crime decline, major crime decline across the country. Crime and violence in the United States starts this prolonged decline that we're still currently in. uh, But tough tough crime policies um, don't decline with them. They continue to be ramped up. So in 1994, the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act pours billions of federal dollars into urban police departments across the country, um, uh, creates 50 new federal offenses. Uh, Under the second Bush administration, uh, you get the near-unanimous endorsement of tough-on-crime policies by police and civic leaders, um, and this is accompanied by the mushrooming of of federal and state police agencies, special units bureaus, think CSI and SBU and all this. Um, So these policies increase the sentences for violent offenses, but they also increase the sentences for prostitution, vagrancy, gambling, drug possession. So the number of officers, police officers per capita in the U.S. increases dramatically in the second half of the 20th century. Um, In Philadelphia, the city that I've been conducting research, uh, it increases by 69 percent between 1960 and 2000. Uh, Then you get the 1980s uh, with the stronger drug laws and sentencing guidelines. And then you get this change in what police are doing. So neighborhood officers patrolling on foot are replaced, um, uh, like neighborhood officers patrolling on foot, focused on keeping the police, the peace, mediating disputes. Um, They get replaced by officers uh, in cars with impressive new technologies, focusing on making arrests. Um, So you get these specialized units with very sophisticated technology to track and identify people um, to arrest. You get this uh, program called CompStat, um, which starts in New York and then, and then gets picked up across the country. Um, it's, uh, the way it works um, in Philly and many other cities is that the number of arrests an officer makes or a unit makes becomes the indication of performance. So uh, if you're doing a good job, uh, you're making a high level of arrest, a high number of arrests. Um, so the officers who are making low, low numbers of arrests are uh, encouraged to catch up, and the ones who are making high, high arrest counts uh, are rewarded and are promoted. So this is a major shift from this kind of more laissez-faire, keeping-the-peace style of policing uh, that had going, been going on before this to this kind of arrest-based quota approach, a, a, really a sea change. But it's not leveled at the entire population, no. It's directed at black neighborhoods and to a lesser extent Latino neighborhoods and at poorer neighborhoods. So as the the black middle class gains considerable political and economic power in the 1960s and 70s through civil rights, the US simultaneously embarks on this new, highly putative era in regard to poor communities of color, um, this big change in how we we govern urban areas, segregated American cities. So five million people are now, almost five million people under probation and parole, two and a half million in prison, another couple million arrested every year. We don't know how many people are living with warrants because we don't collect national data on warrants. It's been really interesting to see the warrant numbers come out of Ferguson Um, in Philadelphia. um, uh, I was quoted 80,000 warrants uh, when I was conducting this research. This is a city of 1.2 million. Um, uh, uh, Police have since come back and said, no, it's actually 47,000. So these are, these, what are these arrest warrants? They're not for new crimes. Um, mostly, mostly, they're for uh, low-level violations, failing to pay court fees and fines, um, failure to show up in court, technical violations of probation and parole, so failure to make curfew, uh, being caught drinking, things that are legal for uh, those, those of us who are not on probation and parole. Um, so there's a number of police divisions uh, in the city that I conducted this research uh, who are specifically looking for people with warrants. Um, each detective division has their own warrant unit. The U.S. Marshals, the sheriffs, the DEA, and the FBI uh, each also run their own warrant units out of the Philadelphia force. Alcohol, tobacco, and firearms has their warrant unit. And then there's an additional warrant unit um, out of, that's run out of the Philadelphia force um, through the 1st Judicial District. It's kind of a clearinghouse for lots of different kinds of warrants. Um, so what do these mostly men, mostly white, guys do? Um, uh, well, they're looking to make stats. They're looking to round up people with warrants. Um, so they um, access uh, Social Security records, electric and gas bills, uh, court records, hospital admission records, employment records. Uh, they visit people's usual haunts, their homes, their workplaces. Um, they threaten family members and friends with arrest, um, particularly when these people have their own legal entanglements to worry about. Um, and the police round up these potential informants and then threaten them with jail time if they don't provide information about the people who are on their docket, like, that day. Um, And these, I should say, these are from interviews that I conducted with the Philadelphia Warrant Unit um, a few years back. Um, So in in an interview with a Philadelphia FBI officer, um... Uh, said he was he developed um, this amazing computer program that uh, tracks people with legal entanglements so that when they 're looking to round up people in a certain neighborhood they can go to the people with a pending court case or who are a person on probation and then um, and then turn to that person to ask them where to find the person that they 're looking for. Um, he developed this um, while he was watching a documentary on the Stasi, the East German secret police so like what does it mean to grow up in a neighborhood um, under this system of policing? Um, so by the time I moved to uh, the neighborhood um, uh, that Mike lived in uh, in Philadelphia in 2002, uh, police curfews uh, had been established around the area for those under age 18, uh, and police video cameras had been placed on major streets. Uh, so, uh, so like you said, um, in the first year and a half, um, I watched the police stop people in cars or stop pedestrians, uh, search them, run their names for warrants, ask people to come in for questioning, or make an arrest at least once a day with five exceptions in the first 18 months. And this is just like in this four block radius that I was living in. Um, So 52 times I watched the police uh, break down doors, uh, chase people through houses uh, or raid houses. Uh, Nine times I watched the police helicopters circle overhead and beam uh, searchlights into the neighborhood. Uh, Fourteen times during the first year and a half of of research where I was taking daily notes, um, I watched the police um, punch, choke, kick, stomp on, or beat young men with nightsticks after they had caught them. Uh, The first week that I spent in Mike's neighborhood, I watched two boys, five and seven years old, play this game of chase, where one boy was the role of cop who was running after the other boy. Um, So when the cop caught up to the other child, uh, he pushed him down and cuffed him with imaginary handcuffs. Um, Then he patted the child down uh, and felt in his pockets, asking if he had a warrant or was carrying a gun or any drugs. Uh, Then the child took a quarter out of the other child's pockets, laughing and yelling, I'm seizing that. In the following months, I saw children uh, give up running and simply stick their hands behind their backs or um, put their bodies flat up against a car or lie flat on the ground. Um, Children yelled, I'm going to lock you up. I'm going to lock you up and you're never coming home. I once saw a six-year-old pull another child's pants down and attempt to do a cavity search. So this isn't a super violent neighborhood or crime-ridden neighborhood that I was living in. It was actually um, a much safer uh, neighborhood compared to lots of other neighborhoods adjacent to it. Um, Low crime rate um, compared to other neighborhoods. Um, Nicer lawns, people had more money in this neighborhood. Um, So this level of police activity that I'm describing, um, this focus on arrests, um, this wasn't exceptional. Uh, This wasn't a hot spot for the police. Um, uh, This was like a a pretty average mixed-income African-American neighborhood. So as I was living uh, in this neighborhood and writing notes every day and getting to know people, uh, I was also going back and forth to Penn and then to Princeton for class. So I got to observe this other group of young men, uh, white men on elite college campuses. Um, I got to observe these men also at close range and to take a lot of notes. Um, And the interesting thing is that these young men uh, were also driving drunk. Um, They were also using drugs, lots of drugs, um, particularly like at frat parties. Um, uh, They were also getting into fights. Um, uh, But their pockets were not searched. Um, Their parties were never raided. Uh, Their fights did not become aggravated assault charges, not a single one. Uh, Neither did they get charged with rape, uh, though apparently one in four women are raped on college campuses. Um, These young men were somehow um, protected from their would-be crimes. Uh, They graduated from college with diplomas, not prison sentences, with degrees in marketing and English, not criminal records. So sometimes when I talk about this research, people are like, well... You know, but aren't aren't these neighborhoods that you're writing about like high crime neighborhoods and aren't the young people that you're writing about uh, the people who are committing the crime and like don't they deserve to get arrested? That's a good point. Um, So the first person I really got to know was Mike, uh, who was 22 when we met. Um, His first arrest came at age 13 when the police stopped, searched, and arrested him for carrying a small amount of marijuana. Uh, He was put on probation for three years. Uh, his best friend was a young man named Chuck. Uh, he made it all the way to 18 uh, without an arrest. Um, what really took him off of that path, though, um, was that when he was a senior in high school, he got into this fight in a schoolyard with another kid who called his mom a crack whore, and he pushed the kid's face into the snow, didn't injure the kid, um, but uh, the school cops charged him with aggravated assault. So, um, so uh, he was... Uh, he spent his senior year of high school sitting in jail awaiting trial for this aggravated assault charge, um, which took about eight months. Um, he was um, he was released after that um, in the summertime. Uh, almost all the charges were dropped. He just had to pay a few hundred dollars in court fees. Um, he tried to re-enroll again as a senior the next fall, um, but the school told him that he was then 19 and he could not be admitted. Uh, so then he was a high school dropout. And um, then he couldn't afford the court fees um, that came due, and uh, he he didn't have the money, uh, so then he had a bench warrant for his arrest. Uh, then he was living on the run, which is the title of the book that I wrote. Chuck's younger brother Tim, uh, his first arrest came at age eleven uh, when he was stopped in a car that his older brother Chuck was driving. Chuck was driving him to school and he was borrowing his girlfriend's car who was borrowing it from her uncle. Um, So the the cops uh, ran the tags on the car, and it came up as stolen in California. Chuck has never been out of the tri-state. He didn't know which one of his girlfriend's relatives bought the car at an auction from someone who had stolen it at some point in California. Um, But anyway, uh, Chuck was charged with receiving stolen property, and then Tim, his younger brother, age 11, was charged with accessory to receiving stolen property. So he was placed on uh, probation um, by by the juvenile court. Um, Okay. So... What I came to after a decade of research is that um, officially we've got one system of justice in America. We, um, we're all held to the same standards. Uh, we've all got the right to a trial. If we're convicted, there are mandatory minimums in place. Uh, so we've all, um, we're all going to serve the same sentence. Uh, but in fact, uh, we have two justice systems going on in the United States, kind of running parallel to each other. Uh, one for white citizens and one for black citizens, and particularly a distinct form of justice for poor African-American citizens in this country. Um, uh, And these two systems of justice have been running parallel to each other like since before the Declaration of Independence. But over the past 40 years, the system operating for black citizens in poorer neighborhoods has gotten so intense and so oppressive uh, that people are now referring to it as an occupying force. Uh, A force that has lost legitimacy, a force that is violent, uh, that is using a system of informants to round up enough people to make their stats, a force that is everywhere but still unavailable uh, to turn to for support and and to promote public safety. Um, So most of the time, uh, this parallel system of justice, um, we don't hear about it. Um, uh, It's hidden from public view. Uh, Black citizens, Latino citizens, are aware of these two systems of justice, but large portions of the American public, the white American public, uh, can continue to believe that we're all living under the same laws, uh, the same enforcement of those laws. Um, We're treated the same way by the police and the courts. And every once in a while, something happens that punctures this. A wide swath of the American public is presented with evidence that makes it very hard to believe, to continue to maintain this, this conviction, that we're all living under the same form of justice. So the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson uh, has made these two systems of justice front page news. Um, and it's also, it's come at this historic moment uh, where reform may really be possible after 40 years of tough on crime. Uh, so uh, can we seize the moment? Thank you.
0: Thank you, Alice. Our second speaker today is Ethan Brown. Uh, Ethan writes about, criminal ju- uh, about our criminal justice system for publications such as Wired, uh, Rolling Stone, GQ, Mother Jones, and The Village Voice. Uh, Ethan is from New Orleans, where the police department there uh, has a long uh, history of systemic uh, uh, problems. Uh, the Department of Justice issued a very highly critical report on that department uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, Ethan is also the author of several highly acclaimed books. Uh, The one that we highlighted in our event notice was his 2007 book uh, from public affairs called Snitch, Informers, Cooperators, and the Corruption of Justice. One reviewer called Snitch the smartest book about race in a decade. So please welcome Ethan Brown.
2: Thank you. Thanks, Tim. I have to quickly correct you because um, uh, I'll be killed in New Orleans for claiming that I'm from New Orleans when I'm actually not from New Orleans. That's a huge. <laughs> that's a huge point of contention in New Orleans. Um, I've, I've, I've lived in New Orleans since 2007, but um, but uh, I, I I wanted to to talk about Ferguson um, and how. Not to make it about me, but but how it sort of ties into a lot of the themes of 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 what I write about in my work. And I felt like as soon as Ferguson happened, it it, it, it seemed to me to be a giant crisis of credibility. That that if you knew at all the way the criminal justice system worked in the past forty years, like some of the things that Alice, that, that Alice was just talking about, whether it's Mass incarceration or the omnibus crime bills of the past forty years, if you knew anything about the way the system has worked in the past forty years, then you knew immediately after Michael Brown was killed that it stunk. and the the sort of stink of of, of this of this crime only only grew whether it was the the prosecutor bob McCulloch um who 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 is on the case or. The way, the, the horrific way in which the body of Michael Brown was left to just lay in the street for hours, and and um, it, and it, it seemed to be this this huge credibility crisis. And and the book that that Tim mentioned, Snitch, that I wrote in 2007, was actually a, a, about a credibility crisis. Um, at the time that I wrote the book, um, Stop Snitching. Uh, a, a, uh, the, the 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 T-shirts and and there was a DVD called Stop Snitching were were hugely popular at that time. That was like the hot thing. There was even a 60 Minutes uh, segment about it with Anderson Cooper, and everybody said it was the literally the worst thing that had ever happened. That oh my God, how could how could people make a DVD called Stop Snitching? How could they wear T-shirts that said Stop Snitching? It's the most irresponsible horrible, horrifying thing we've ever seen, and we have to do everything we can to stop it, and we have to do everything we can to discredit it. And what I explored in my book was how Stop Snitching was actually uh, a reaction to a total lack of credibility in the criminal justice system, specifically the way the criminal justice system, particularly at the federal level, handles people who cooperate in federal cases. And actually, in, in the book, I had a chapter about the guy who for some reason very few people bothered to even talk to, the, a guy in Baltimore who's a barber who made the Stop Stitching video. And wow, it turns out what he'd done in creating that video initially was he, the, the centerpiece for that video was him going around the neighborhood and talking about these two cops named King and Murray. Who would rob drug dealers and then resell the drugs, and and you know the, the guy who created this horrible stop snitching video? Wow, he turned out to be right. These two cops were indicted in federal court, and you know so so um, I see Ferguson as a credibility crisis. I see stop snitching as a credibility crisis, and 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 again, what I wanted to do in my book was like explore that crisis and how how you know uh, folks. Who who actually live and breathe the justice system see it one way, and how you know folks outside of it see it a, 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 you know a completely different way. Um, and I think it's also important uh, to note that like uh, for the past five years or so, I've actually kind of moved away from from book writing, and I actually am a licensed private investigator, and I work on on as a as a uh, investigator on criminal defense cases. So I've now really gotten into the weeds and how the system actually works. And what what amazes me about the criminal justice system is is how just about every piece of it, from Brady violations that DAs make constantly, which are, you know, Brady is a, is a Supreme Court decision where prosecutors are required to turn over exculpatory evidence to defendants. And Brady violations are just completely rife. They're completely out of control. And there's no mechanism to punish prosecutors who, who engage in these kinds of violations. Um, you, you look at policing, which is now, you know, there was a great uh, Radley Balco piece a few days ago about profit-oriented uh, and profit-motivated policing, you know, where, where where it's all about seizing the, the cash. Um, that's, that's become so huge. Um, and I think, you know, and, and, and another piece of this too, and this is something that I explored a bit in Snitch, is like, you know, and, and, I'm, and I'm glad Alice brought up the, the, the omnibus crime bills of the late 80s and 90s that, that ratcheted up sentencing and that really created the kind of mass incarceration crisis that we have right now. I think it's really important for people to know that like when these bills were being passed, it wasn't some thoughtful, you know, process that, that occurred. You know, I, I spoke to a guy named Eric Sterling, who was an attorney who was, who was in on sort of the, 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 um, the sausage-making kind of part of, of those of those omnibus crime bills. And he said, he, he compared it to an auction, where it was, you know, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, you know, it was just a, a ratcheting up of sentencing just, you know, because that was the most popular thing to do. Whoever could come up with the harshest sentences was going to do you know, do the most politically popular thing. So there's no thoughtfulness whatsoever um, behind these, these crime bills. And that also ties into this kind of credibility crisis theme that I'm really obsessed with. Um, and I think you know, a- another piece of this, um, and I think Neil can talk about this, is, is the, the, the total lack of oversight that we have. Of the system, um, you know, we have prosecutors who who commit Brady violations with no no oversight, no no consequences. We have you know, people are suddenly realizing, wait, there's no database for cop killings. You know, We don't even have the numbers. How many people are killed by cops every year? How many people are shot by cops every year? We don't have any of those numbers. so so I, I think a big part of this credibility crisis, is the total lack of oversight that exists in every piece of the criminal justice uh, criminal justice system, even in prisons? You know, there's the news about Rikers that came out recently, and the DOJ had to intervene. Um, there, you know, there's, you know, I, I think a huge piece of this massive expansion of the criminal justice system is that it has it has risen with essentially zero oversight. And I think one of the biggest pieces of the puzzle in terms of rolling this back is oversight. Because I don't think cops are bad people or prosecutors are bad people. And I can't stand the phrase bad apples. It's like one of the (laughs) dumbest and most useless phrases ever. Uh, You know, Al Sharpton used it in his Ferguson speech. It's like, it's not about bad apples. It's not about good people. It's not about bad people. It's about a system that has zero oversight to it. And it's about a system that incentivizes all the wrong things, whether it's making tons of arrests or taking tons of money from people or telling somebody who's caught up in a federal case, hey, you know, you're looking at 40, uh, you know, as far as the sentencing guidelines are concerned. If you cooperate with me, I don't care if what you say is complete horse crap, you know, you'll, you'll be looking at three. You know, it's a system that really has zero uh, accountability and, and, and oversight. And I think that's a really, really important piece of this. Um, so, yeah, that's all I want to say <laughs> <laughs> right now. But, yeah, thank you. Uh...
0: Okay, thank you, Ethan. Uh, Politico. Uh, reported that members of the Congressional Black Caucus uh, sent a letter to President Obama uh, a few days ago to take steps to prevent more Fergusons. And the letter called uh, for the appointment of a federal czar that would oversee uh, local police departments that receive federal funds. And the letter also urged the administration to Suspend programs that are providing local police departments uh, with these military weaponry. I mention this as background because our next speaker is a freelance writer and she also created a blog called Crew of 42 that covers the news and work of uh, black members of Congress uh, and that focuses especially on issues that impact uh, urban communities. Uh, she's a career journalist. Uh, over the years she has held positions with USA Today, uh, The Washington Post, uh, The Hill and the Associated Press. Uh, Her book called uh, Birth of a Statesman is a photo documentary about uh, President Obama's rise to the Senate and then to the presidency. Um, We were on a TV uh, show just a few weeks ago, uh, and she had so many insights and interesting things to say that I knew I had to uh, invite her here to speak. So would you please welcome Lauren Victoria Burke.
3: everyone today Um, I spend most of my time on Capitol Hill talking to members of Congress about criminal justice Uh, usually members of the Congressional Black Caucus but not just members of the Congressional Black Caucus because thank goodness Rand Paul is here to make it very very interesting so it's been some really good conversations Uh, just a little bit about me I grew up on Long Island Uh, my father was a cop and a corrections officer at Rikers Island for 25 years I have uh, several law enforcement uh, members of my family, <laughs> I'm proud to say, uh, including a cop in, in Virginia Beach. All he deals with is drunk kids at, uh, at, at sort of party time Virginia Beach doesn't do really hard stuff. But I got an ATF agent in my family. I've got another corrections officer in my family. And uh, I know a lot of cops and have always been interested in law enforcement. So it's, uh, thanks a lot, it's a pleasure to be here. But the basic point of my work on Capitol Hill is to talk to members of Congress about federal criminal justice policy and the bounce. A lot of what Ethan said was very familiar to me. You know, I've spent a lot of time writing specifically about why we have a situation in the United States where we lead the world in the rate of incarceration and spend $63 billion a year to do it. And what it really sort of comes down to is that uh, criminal justice policy is built on the idea that you'd like to brag about being tough on crime, putting people in jail, and being heroistic about that. So uh, when politicians voted for the 1994 Clinton crime bill, which was uh, a major moment in overcarceration in our country, it was primarily because it gets people elected. It's very easy to brag about how tough you are on crime. It's very easy to have. Uh, there have been political ads. You know, we all have probably heard about the Willie Horton ad. Uh, (laughs) There have been other ads where criminals have been in the background on big posters, et cetera and so on, people bragging about how tough they are on crime. What this has led to is uh, a lot of cities in this country running out of money, locking people up, mostly for nonviolent offenses, uh, drug-related nonviolent offenses. If we go back sort of before the 1990s, we have a period where the Rockefeller drug laws come in and effectively criminalize being addicted to drugs, which is another major moment in our crime policy so what you end up with is uh, you know I'm sure many people are familiar with the new Jim Crow uh, Michelle Alexander's book, which really sort of outlines it uh, uh, we have a situation where we make profit off of uh, locking people up, and we continue to do that it's uh, <laughs> it's it's sort of a shame, but one good piece of news that I find uh, very encouraging, actually, is that we're getting to a point where the whole discussion over over over-incarceration is becoming a lot more bipartisan, uh, not just because of Rand Paul, but because of the fact that uh, cities are running out of money. (laughs) They just can't, they can't continue to lock people up. It's ridiculous. Uh, You know, uh, obviously the name of this discussion we're having is Lessons of Ferguson. One of the lessons of Ferguson is that Racism is always a factor in these things, unfortunately. It's something that people do not want to completely confront at any time. Uh, But when you look at the situation around Ferguson, uh, you have to understand that not only are there two forms of policing in the United States, but that uh, many of the police are looking at uh, African-American males differently before anything even happens, regardless of what action they're taking. Um, In the case of Darren Wilson, of course, we don't know whether or not he knew that... uh, Mike Brown stole the cigars or not, but the basic fact of the matter is he stopped Mike Brown for what is effectively jaywalking. <laughs> in the case of Eric Gardner, who is now dead, he was stopped for selling loose cigarettes. So we're talking nonviolent offenses where a police officer comes up to somebody and has an interaction. And one of the things that, uh, even though I've never been a cop, never been in law enforcement, I certainly have been the recipient of many war stories from my <laughs> relatives who have been in law enforcement. But One of the things that we find specifically in New York is that the interactions, the number of interactions between law enforcement and average everyday everyday citizens is is just huge. So for 10 years, and it was sort of spurred by 9-11, but when you get seven years away from 9-11, it gets kind of hard to justify Stopping 600,000 people in one year uh, on stop and frisk, <laughs> you know, This is this is a time that we're living in by the way where the crime the violent crime rates in the United States are going down and yet you see increased interaction between law enforcement and citizens and that increased interaction is typically between law enforcement and African-American males and Latino males And this is not to say that white males don't get screwed too, because quite frankly, there is a poverty issue there where you you have people and we we have, you know, 50 million people in poverty in the United States. So obviously there's a economic issue there as well. But in New York specifically, uh, they targeted uh, Latino males and black males and what you end up with is uh, just increased interactions with the police. Uh, And one of the lessons of Ferguson, which is pretty obvious is that, uh, you know, White people are having a different experience in general with the police, <laughs> which is to say that when they see these things on TV, I think a lot of people look at that and go, "What do you mean somebody got shot uh, because you know someone asked someone to get out of the street?" It just seems like an incredibly ridiculous situation that somebody's dead because of that. You know, what do you what do you mean that somebody's dead, choked to death because they were selling loose cigarettes? But I think that in our country. The interaction that, and, and I'm going to be specific to New York when I say this, because we have this data to back this up. It's not just sort of my little theory. Uh, in New York, uh, they stopped in a 10-year period, sort of 80% young men of color. Uh, so seven, 16, 17-year-olds to 25 black and, black and Latino males. So those increased interactions can be good or they can be bad. You know, if somebody, my my theory on it is, if you just sort of randomly stop every 10 people in a big city, you're gonna probably find something. One out of every 10 people, black, white, or whatever. But if you just focus on one specific group, then you know you're gonna get you're gonna get the statistics that show that. So you know, sort of interesting to watch uh, Ray Kelly and Mr. Bratton and all the rest and Mr. Bloomberg. <laughs> Talk about how great of an idea it was to have stop and frisk. Uh, you know, talk about how wonderful that was and nobody objected to it, nobody thought about the Constitution and the Fourth Amendment. It's a funny thing, and this is what I mean I think when I, when I say that racism is a big factor in these things. I don't think you could get away with any of this, uh, that type of uh, widespread Fourth Amendment violation if you were doing it to any other group in this country other than black and Latino men. Uh, it'd be just outrageous. Uh, Keep in mind, in New York last year, they had a record low uh, in murders, like 350. It's not to make light of the 350 people who were murdered, but this is a city of 8 million, 8.4 million people. So, you know, Ray Kelly used to do this little game when he would present the crime stats of always using percentages and never actually using the numbers. So if you do the math and you know that there's 2.2 million black people in New York and Uh, There's 350 murders. That's probably about about 200 people have committed murders. So 200 people out of 2.4 million people. (laughs) And and we're going to stop and frisk everybody to save lives. So it makes no statistical sense. He got away with it because the mayor at the time sort of let him get away with it. Uh, I was always kind of Wanting the Republican Party to show up in New York and say, "Hey, you know, Black people, why you keep voting for these uh, Democrats and Independents when they're stopping frisking you (laughs) and then doing and taking away your Fourth Amendment rights?" Unfortunately, that didn't happen. But the bottom line of it is that uh, we are in in a weird place in this country where there's a I think uh, definitely too much interaction between law enforcement officers and people who are committing very low level nonviolent offenses. (laughs) And when you have that, you you know, you're bound to have a few every now and then that go really, really, really wrong, like Eric Garner. Um, Thankfully, for social media, we know more about these things, kind of like the sort of a Ray Rice element to this, in terms of when there's a video, there's more of a reaction. But quite frankly, Given the history of our country, we've known that these things have been going on for years, certainly in the old South, <laughs> where people just sort of turn up dead. but now now we're starting to get cases again where of black males who have committed suicide, you know, where when they were uh handcuffed at the back and somehow were shot in the front. So we're starting to get kind of I think a little bit of a redux. But anyway, my point is though that uh, over incarceration the country has been uh, unfortunately too much of a part of the dialogue in this country. I'm, I'm really surprised that uh, conservatives have not embraced the idea more of the less government argument. You know, people obviously argued about less government over health care. I always wonder why they don't argue over less government when it comes to over-incarceration. But uh, my time is typically spent on Capitol Hill yacking about, yakking with members of Congress, some of whom voted for the 1994 omnibus crime bill, which is always an interesting discussion when you're talking to black members of Congress who voted for the 1994 crime bill (laughs) and and to meet the people the more interesting discussion of the people who figured out it was a disaster which really is just to say that they actually read the bill (laughs) (laughs) because they knew that it was there was a bunch of money in there for policing and and effectively over incarceration mandatory minimum sentencing et cetera, and so on and they figured it out and voted against it people like John Lewis and Maxine Waters Uh, And Bobby Scott and John Conyers, they figured it out back in 1994 that it was going to spike incarceration, which is exactly what it did. Uh, Now, thankfully, we are seeing some, some, we are seeing a very interesting coalition of uh, sort of libertarian Republicans and liberal Democrats joining against over incarceration. Uh, Raul Labrador and uh, Tom Massey and some members that. And of course, Rand Paul is sort of leading it. Cory Booker is in there. So uh, that's hopeful, because that conversation, we haven't been having that conversation. This is the first we've we we've had it and it, Well, actually, I don't think we've ever had it. <laughs> Everyone, since, since incarceration spike, nobody's ever sort of said, OK, wait a minute, we've got to change these laws. So it, it really is incredible. It's uh, I think it's actually sort of embarrassing. <laughs> I mean, I think if we were talking about, right, that it took this long. And also, too, I think if we were talking about another country, if we were talking about China, if we were, you know, China had this little funny thing that they did trying to embarrass us over Mike Brown, which, of course, wasn't difficult to do. And I think the UN secretary saying, you know, you guys have to, (laughs) you guys are are basically squashing a minority in your country. What are you doing? And again, I think if we were looking at another country, we wouldn't, it would be a little bit more dispassionate and a little bit more objective. And we would say to ourselves, you know, uh, that that's wrong, what's going on. And obviously we saw what went on in Ferguson with regard to the, uh, the over-policing of protesters, you know. Sort of funny, our Constitution does say things about the right to protest and all this, and then when it actually happens, uh, you, you see that there's a great deal of pushback. But um, the thing that I would leave everybody with is the thing that is the most difficult to talk about, which is racism in American society. Uh, that is what is the big factor in our criminal justice system, that people are treated differently with regard to race. One of the biggest uh, examples of this is the, is the, um, is the way we prosecute uh, marijuana specifically, where we know that, you know, as Alice already told us, that people use it the same rate, and yet somehow blacks are arrested more. And there's a lot of theories about it with regard to open-air sales, and it's easier to arrest black people because they sell on the corner. But the bottom line is, it's a over-policing in black communities. There's no doubt about that. So there's, there's that. And uh, it's, a, it's a tough situation. Um, I'm gonna stop talking now because I, I kind of like the Q&A of these things. So, <laughs> you know, thanks for, thanks for having me, and thanks for listening.
0: Thanks, Lauren. Um, Our next speaker is a 34-year veteran of the Maryland State Police and the Baltimore Police Department. During his time on the force, he held the position of commander for the Education and Training Division. So he's well qualified to address some of the policing issues that are now being debated around the country. Uh, He retired as a major, and he presently serves as the executive director for LEAP, that's Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. In that capacity, he testifies before legislative committees and gives lectures all around the country on the harmful consequences of the drug war. Please welcome Neil Franklin.
4: Thanks, Tim, and thanks for having me, and thanks to Cato for putting this on. It's very important. Of course, my whole talk just changed after listening to these wonderful people. Um, but that's a good thing. You yeah. know, when we, when we talk about this issue, we, we tend to think that uh, um, this problem between policing and communities of color and the black community, we, we tend to think that it's something new. You know, like over the, when I say new, I mean newer than a lot of, well, actually older than a lot of the the folks here. I'm talking about the past four decades or so. But there's always been a problem between police and the black community. This is nothing new. Nothing new. Blacks have always been viewed a little differently. As far back as you want to go. I think back to, I grew up in Baltimore, and uh, I think back to the 1960s when I'm downtown Baltimore on Howard Street with some friends, and we we were exiting a movie theater to head back home and catch the bus, just one bus to head back up to our neighborhood in Veservoir Hill, and we're standing on a bus stop there on Howard Street. And yes, there used to be movie theaters in downtown Baltimore. And we're waiting for the bus, and here comes a a foot patrolman walking north on Howard Street, and he's looking at us, and he gets closer, and we just had the feeling that something just wasn't going to go right. And you know when things aren't going to go right between you and a police officer. And he begins to question us as to why we're downtown. And uh, we explain. We just came from the movie theater, the Mayfair 2, right across the street. And he says, well, hit the bricks. Start walking that way. And I'm like, we're waiting for the bus, which is we could actually see the bus a few few blocks down. And see, these things never leave. Your memory. And they're crystal clear. It's a number 28 bus. And he pulls out his nightstick. You know, Baltimore has the espatoons and actually uh, that, that very unique nightstick that they twirl, which uh, we actually brought back um, after we had gotten rid of them. But he pulls it out. And one end of this nightstick is actually designed for poking, It's a very narrow tip and you just jab someone right between in a rib cage and believe me, it, it makes a point, literally. And he takes it and he starts poking us in the ribs. Go on, start walking north, now. It's no different than what we're experiencing today. Like with Mike Brown. No video of that incident. We don't know exactly what occurred. We have an idea of what occurred. I could probably stand here right now and tell you what occurred. And I'm going to tell you one thing, and I don't have any problem saying this. It was about two black men walking in the street. If it were about the cigars, you would have heard that from day one. From day one. The police would have come out right away saying it was about This guy being suspected of an of of a strong arm robbery of these cigars, the report came over the radio. The officer heard it and he acted, but that wasn't the case. I know how it works. So I just wanted to to make that point as I began here about this isn't something new, but we had a chance. We had a chance of changing some things. The civil rights movement. And as we come into the late 60s and going into the early 70s, and things really do start to change, people had a lot of hope. Police departments were changing, you know, because even when police began serving in police departments, you know, Well, in Baltimore, as with many cities, if you were a black police officer, you couldn't drive a car. There were many things you weren't allowed to do. And there's still a lot of friction between race internally in police departments. If you can't resolve it within the police department, you're sure not going to resolve it between police and community. But we we had a chance. But what happened? In the 1970s, we started the drug war. It was at a time when when businesses started leaving, blue-collar jobs started leaving many of our cities. And why is that significant? It's significant because many blacks held these jobs with little education or, in some cases, no education. And these jobs start leaving. So in these communities, you, you pick up a, a side hustle. For some, it was running numbers. My father was one of those. He was a numbers runner. State took his part-time gig away from him. It's called the lotto. Okay? 1976, July 29th, the Maryland lotto was born. But the drug war raged on. And many, many of these men had started selling drugs within their communities to make ends meet. But then we, the police, started ramping it up and ramping it up. Government funding coming in under Richard Nixon and every administration since, because getting tough on crime got votes. So we started arresting people. You see because the federal government recruited, bribed local law enforcement into this drug war. And I'm and I'm going down this road because I'm 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 there's a word stigma and it's going to come into play here really soon. So as we start law enforcement as we start making all of these arrests for these drug crimes, these heinous drug crimes. Oh my God, they're poisoning our Our communities with these drugs, just remember, (laughs) it's not these people selling drugs in our communities that have the boats and the airplanes, but that's another story. okay? And the shipping companies and so on. But that's who we're targeting. And in cities like Baltimore, we're, we're taking down these major drug organizations with these kingpins. So these six or seven major drug operations in cities like, when I talk about Baltimore, I'm talking about every major city across this country. So we're chopping off the heads, we're going after the kingpins, and we turn six or seven major drug organizations literally overnight into 60, then 600 street corner operating drug organizations. And with that comes the violence. With that comes the competition between these crews on these corners. So, you know, the violence that we do see is directly related to the drug war and the police coming in and dismantling these drug operations. The, the harder we push, the more violence you see. Then the media gets in on it. And Before you know it, we have terms like super predator, you know, and the crack era comes along in, in the 1980s, and, and one of the major grants is is because of a, 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 a the murder of a police officer in New York. We, and here we have the Byrne grant. Millions of dollars every year going into law enforcement to, to fight the war on drugs. I could go on all day about the war on drugs, but I needed to paint this picture real clear Because stigma has a lot to do with Michael Brown. Stigma has a lot to do with how law enforcement interacts with members of the black community. And it's not just how white police officers see young black men in these communities. It's about how black police officers see young black men within these communities like me. the One of the, the problems is as a police officer, when you come through the academy and, and you go through your training and you get out there and you start enforcing these laws, you don't have a clue as to what's really going on. You don't know about the history. You don't know about the laws that you're charged with enforcing, are they good laws, are they not so good laws, are they problematic, how do they affect society, communities, neighborhoods? You don't know any of that, because we don't teach that in our academies. Fortunately, most of our academies now do teach about the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, but not enough. And why is this important? Because you know, as, as I went through my three-decade career, I didn't have a clue about any of this until around my 23rd or 24th year. By then, it's, it's, it's kind of too late. I want to touch on just a couple of things, and then I'm going to wrap up because, like, Lauren, I like the Q&A piece as well, but there's so much to talk about. Oh, my God. I want to touch on just a couple of things that some others have said. Um, stop, stop snitching. And I, and I have the other thing you want me to talk, touch on, too, but stop snitching, which came about in my hometown of Baltimore and you heard Ethan talk about how it was born. That was about drug dealers in the business snitching on other drug dealers. Don't do it. You're in it just like me. You get caught, take your medicine. Don't snitch on me for doing the same thing you were doing. But again, because of this this ineffective relationship between police and community, it then morphed into other things. We're not even going to snitch about robberies. We're We're not going to snitch about purse snatchings. We're not going to snitch about rapes. We're not going to snitch about homicides. We're just not going to go to the man about anything. And there is not a single law enforcement police commander chief that will tell you that you could be effective in solving crime in any community without the cooperation of the citizens. You just can't do it. We get our information to solve those crimes from the community. And the more fractured that relationship is, the less effective you're gonna be. Police reform when I left, when I retired from the Maryland State Police, I was then recruited to go to Baltimore as a commander of uh, their training division. I initially wasn't gonna do it, but accept the position, but then I saw an opportunity for a model of police reform. To be born out of the Baltimore Police Department's Policing Academy. And we started down the right road. We, we had enhanced uh, scenario-based training, you know, we, we took these new trainees and we introduced them to members of the community. No, not the nice, so-called nice members of the community, but young black men who were in the criminal justice system at the Afferro Youth Center. And they worked side-by-side with these kids for, for a week, day in and day out, for each, you know, eight hours a day. And he developed some good relationships. They saw that these kids had the very same dreams that they had, and the kids saw that hey, you know what? Hey, cops are human. They have feelings just like me. And a lot of and some of those relationships, I guarantee you, are are, are still existing today. But the problem is, when these young police officers head out into the street. And now they're with their new squad, and they want to fit in with that squad, and that culture is there. That ingrained culture that will never change unless we do something about it. And hopefully, with what's going on now with Ferguson, and unfortunately these, these other murders of black men around the country, and the attention that it's getting, maybe now we'll get serious about police reform. And there are a couple of things that I believe we need to do, and this is where I'll talk about oversight the lack of oversight. Some of our police departments have civilian review boards. There are many th- pieces to oversight, but I'm going to just talk about a couple important ones. These are very important, but they have to be effective civilian review boards. What do I mean by that? They need teeth. They need subpoena power. They need to be directly linked to the internal affairs unit and part of the internal internal affairs unit for that police department. You know, when complaints come in, they don't go to the duty officer at the precinct. They should be done either over the Internet or maybe at City Hall with the inspector general's office or some outside entity that then funnels it into the police department and to the civilian review board. And there's more to that, but at the bottom line is it has to be an effective review board where the decisions are binding. Some other things that happen, we need a revamp of middle management and law enforcement. <laughs> and, and there's many things that can be done. One that can be done is bringing in middle management from time to time from, from the outside and not coming up through the ranks of that police department. Because when I become a sergeant or a lieutenant, all those officers know all the dirt that I've done. <laughs> and some of it's not so pretty, which could cause problems. So I allow them to do continue with the culture, the problematic culture. And one very important piece of many to police reform is ending the drug war. And when I say end the drug war, I mean ending the prohibition of all drugs, regulating and controlling them, ending the, 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 the control and the power and the influence and the money that we're giving to the cartels and our neighborhood gangs and so on. But unfortunately, there's a very, very big problem when it comes to ending the drug war, and that, unfortunately, is corporate America. Mass incarceration, prison industry, drug testing. I could go on and on and on and on, but there's a lot of money being made by corporate America because of how the drug war currently exists. I think I'll end there. Um and uh, answer and talk about some of the other things uh, that I have to say in in Q&A. But I just want to say again that this is nothing new, the problems that we have between police and community. And hopefully it's about time. Hopefully we do learn a lesson from Ferguson and we begin to look at this situation in detail from the militarization of our police departments to the drug war, to race, to management, and so on. Thank you very much.
0: Okay, we're gonna open it up and take your questions now. I have a couple of requests. First, uh, when I call on you, wait for the microphone to arrive so that we can all hear your question. Please identify yourself and any affiliation that you might have, and then keep your questions brief so that we can get to as many people as possible. Yes, right here. Hi, my name is uh, Jeff Merrill. I work for Allison University Public Schools. Um, since uh, first has occurred, in fact, when I first heard about it, the first thing I thought about was um, what happened with George Zimmerman because um, there's a great deal of correlation between the two, and, the, and he was uh, acquitted, what, less than three years ago? So it's actually a recent event. However, in all the readings I've done, they don't mention uh, the Zimmerman case at all, which just seems, um I find it very odd because there are so many similarities. I was wondering if any of you can account as to why the two why the two are not considered um, closely related. I've heard quite a bit. I don't I've know heard,
3: about you. Yeah, guys. I've I felt like they are closely related because uh they are. <laughs> it's another case where you can almost see the same arguments playing out in both stories, which is the sort of he must have done something to deserve it argument when it comes to a black male being shot dead who is not armed. <laughs> so we've heard, we've heard that one before. Um, I thought the Zimmerman case was a lot worse than the Brown case, because you're talking about a civilian with zero authority. Walking up to another person, following them, exiting their vehicle, walking up to another person and saying, effectively, Price said, "What are you doing here?" You know, and then Trayvon turns around and stands his ground. Probably the point is, you know, that's somebody with no authority shooting somebody dead, following them, and then getting off and walking scot free. So, uh, in the case of Mike Brown, at least you have a, a law, a peace officer who does have the right to come over, does have the right to do certain things. Etc. And so on, but I have actually heard a connection between the two, and I have made that connection too. Yeah, it, it's. Uh, but I know what you mean. Uh, not in, in the initial reporting, it didn't necessarily come up that much. I have a
0: question that I'd like to ask Neil. Uh, in response to the killing of Eric Garner in New York City, you know, the chief of police there, William Bratton, has kind of said, "Well, we're going to order retraining." and i was just wondering like when you hear that what do you think of that i mean do you think that oh this is good news or do you think uh, this is just uh, an effort to
4: this is this uh, a standard comment i mean that's that, that's <laughs> you know you pull out your your cue cards and say okay we're going to do training i mean that's, that's what i was afraid you'd say <laughs> if you look at any any uh <laughs> Any traumatic incident in, in policing around the country, that's always a standard piece. We're going to do more training. Let me tell you something. These police officers are well-trained. In the NYPD, in any large city, any large jurisdiction, the officers are very, very well-trained. The problem is, again, oversight. The problem, again, is the lack of effective management You know, with at, at the mid-level uh, layer of that police department. And of course, obviously, ultimately, it lies at the top with the commissioner or the, or the chief. One thing that I'm I am happy to hear about is the uh, pilot project with the body cams. Okay, I think in this day and age, with this technology that we have, you know, that every police officer should have a body cam on, not in the car anymore, a body cam, and I like the ones that are designed to fit on the head so that you see wherever the police officer is looking. Um, so that's, that's my opinion on that. It's just a standard reply.
0: Say a little bit more, like why, what difference do you think that's going to make? Uh,
4: the so. body cams? Yeah. Yeah, and I know a lot of people don't agree with the body cams. is just more and more monitoring of people, or whatever. But I think it's going to be very beneficial for both the police officer and the citizen. It's already been proven. We already know that when police officers are being monitored, when they know that they have a device on them, whether it's their car cam or or body cam, that they interact with with people differently. You know, they don't curse as much. They definitely don't smack you over the head with a nightstick as much. You know, they change their behavior, as most of us do. And this isn't their private life. They're working. Okay, so I don't see a problem with it. One bit. Now, it's, all, it's very beneficial for the citizen because it's being recorded. And I, I personally advise citizens to record while the police are recording. You know, that's, that's what I say. But also, I think cities are going to save a lot of money with lawsuits. Lawsuits are going to drop dramatically. And uh, you know, again, it can protect the citizen. And it can protect the officer, because there are lawsuits that, well, are bogus. And if you've got it on video that the the officer handled it properly and did everything accordingly, then it's going to save his or her butt, too. So it works both ways. I I just think it's it's going to be a great program. Just real quick, I just need to say something about um, the, I disagree a little bit. Mm With the, the, the two shootings with uh, Mike Brown and uh, uh, Trayvon Martin, I think it's much more serious. I think the Mike Brown scenario is much more serious because here's an individual who has had training. They're, they're charged with the responsibility of protecting community and, and, and all the citizens. You know, they're supposed to be interacting with people on a certain level. They just have so much power we, the police, have so much power We're interacting with citizens that I, I, I think that uh, um, what we saw with Mike Brown, and I think the number is somewhere around 400 people a year around this country are killed at the hands of police officers. Now, that's the total number. It's not breaking down the incidents, of course. But I just think that uh, police just are given so much responsibility by community that it takes it to another level. Um, and uh, I just, that's all. I just wanted to point that out. I just think that we're given so much. You know. Okay. Yes,
2: sir. Hi, my name is Derek Lee. I'm with the Cato Institute. I'm interning here. Uh, multiple people mentioned citizen oversight or just oversight of police departments as one of the possible cures to uh, over-policing. What would a competent uh, oversight look like that both protects the safety of the officers and allows them to do the legitimate portions of their job effectively?
3: Anybody want to talk to that? That's a tough one.
4: <laughs> yeah, that's Neil. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's a tough one. Well... Yeah. I just uh, think that, uh... all right, real quick, here's an example. Just about every community has uh, has a, for instance, a, a neighborhood council, a neighborhood group, and you have leaders within those neighborhood groups and so on. I think it's very easy to, first of all, select uh, citizens from, from many of the neighborhoods. I think every precinct, for instance, in Baltimore we call them districts. I think each district should have their own uh, oversight that works jointly with that particular district precinct for for some people, um, in working with the commander and the internal affairs division, um, it's almost like a standing uh, uh, grand jury on a smaller scale, you know that that receives complaints. Every citizen's complaint somehow it will cross their desk, you know, and some will be acted upon quickly, you know, but then there are others that that. You know, serious ones like maybe at the Mike Brown level that uh, they really have to dig down into and do some investigating and then they have to decide, you know, what's going on. I think if police departments and the members and the officers realize that everything that they do is going to be looked at with a fine tooth comb regarding their interaction with the citizens... Um, I think that things would change now, are you going to change the hearts of uh, these police officers? Probably not, but you can definitely change how they their actions you know and and I 'm telling you police officers when they realize that they're going to be held accountable for how they interact with citizens, they will change right. despite how they feel about people, they will change their actions, but we're just not holding police accountable and i don't I, I really don't get it. I get I get it for the politicians because, you know, the police unions, they carry a lot of votes. I get that. But the citizens, we, we all need to be in the streets screaming about police reform and effective police reform and coming up with these plans to make it happen. Because I'll tell you something, and, and why you're seeing so much change today and, and attention from the right and the middle and the left is because when you realize that people who supposedly have the same level of rights as you do, are now being persecuted and victimized by the, by the group of folks who are supposed to be protecting them, you're, it's just a matter of time before you're next. But the,
3: Neil, don't you think one of the things that has to involve is the power to fire a police officer, which seems like impossible in America? <laughs> like no matter what happens, no matter what the scenario is, no matter whether it's on tape or not, nobody gets fired
4: and i and i you're, you're right you're so right with that and you know what i blame the leaders i, I blame the, right. the police chiefs and the commissioners because i'll tell you right now i'll fire you as a police officer i would fire you for lying
1: sure um to your question what's your name derek derek I think, in addition to the civilian review boards, we need uh, a, a real change in CompStat, in what CompStat is doing, in in the in the goals of CompStat. So right now,
4: CompStat. Yeah, you want to explain it. to
1: people. So, uh, do you want to explain what CompStat is? Okay. I, I don't want to explain just it to it. <laughs> real, real
4: quick, it's uh, <laughs> computer-driven statistics. It's for it's an enforcement tool, uh, which you know, was born out of cities like New York, where we look at crime data on a seven day, 14 day, and a monthly cycles. And we look at particular crimes, see, uh, do crime mapping, seeing where they occur, and then we apply an enforcement model to that. So ComStat is actually, see this form right here? OK, so up front, like here, you have the police, police chief, mm-hmm. maybe, and then other commanders, high level commanders, who are questioning, say, each row is a precinct. And that precinct commander will come with all of his or her support personnel, and then they have to answer questions regarding crime in their individual precincts. Okay, so here are your numbers. What are you doing about it? You have an an uptick here in burglaries. What have you been doing about it? Seven days, 14 days, whatever. And it's very adversarial. And one of the things that they really rely on a lot are arrest numbers.
1: Yeah, so it's like citations, how many traffic stops, how many arrests. So if we could move to a model of promoting public safety and reducing crime rather than how many arrests have, has an officer made or how many arrests has a unit made as a model of performance, uh, I think that would do a, a lot of good.
0: OK. Yes, sir. Uh, my name is Stan Brown. I'm a uh, lawyer. and. Uh, I'm also a member of the Board of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, but I'm not speaking for them. I'm just speaking for myself. And uh, one of the oversight issues that was mentioned was prosecutors and and Brady violations. And um, what do you do about that in terms of oversight? Because uh, you may have read about that case in North Carolina where the (laughs) <laughs> two guys that were let out after 20 years in prison, and the the prosecutor mm-hmm. who was called killer or something or a murderer or something or other basically said, you know, they're still guilty as far as I'm concerned, and and clearly he wasn't penalized in any way.
3: Yeah, that ultimate oversight is a really tough piece because all this is driven, of course, by politicians who are supported by this idea of of you know, heavy prosecution and putting people in jail. These prosecutors know that, you know, they get elected some places based on uh, their ability to uh, incarcerate people. So it's a really hard thing to get at. I always think to myself they should pass a bill that when you find that you've put somebody in jail for some ridiculous amount of time, that you should go to jail. I mean, I know we can't do that, but unfortunately, it's a really difficult oversight. It's a really difficult oversight piece. In, in Louisiana,
2: they have, we have an office of disciplinary counsel where bar, our, our complaints <sighs> right. about Brady violations and things like that are referred, but it's very toothless. And I think it has some of the yeah. same issues that we talk about with cops, where it's just nothing, ha- you know, complaints go in there and nothing happens to them. And I think there's also right. an issue where criminal defense attorneys have to deal with these prosecutors every day. They have to make deals, w- you know, with them. They have to... You know, they're obviously working for their clients, and if they have terrible relationships with the DAs, they're, they're going to get awful deals for their clients. So that's an issue. But I think the, a big piece of it is, you know, like, again, I don't know what it's called in other states, but in, in Louisiana, it's the ODC Office of Disciplinary Counsel. And, and they're just toothless as far as dealing with Brady violations mm-hmm. and these big misconduct issues. I think there should be actually criminal penalties All for right. the big ones. For like the for you know if you're withholding, if you're you know uh, there's a famous case in in New Orleans that went all the way to the Supreme Court, John Thompson, where you know it was it was very very purposeful uh, withholding of evidence, and you you have cases where prosecutors are you know burning evidence or throwing it into the garbage and sorry things like that. Then I I think there should be criminal penalties for 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 those kinds of acts and and not only do we not have those we have no sorts of pen, no sorts of uh consequences even for the gravest Brady violations that end in people being killed and really to be honest we also have to change the culture of prosecutors which i think in, in some ways you could argue is even worse than the than the culture of cops the culture of prosecutors pardon me for a moment is is a win 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 at all costs culture and it doesn't matter you know it's why you have prosecutors you know you could you know you could present evidence that I'm Ethan Brown and they will refuse to see it if it means a win is taken off of their board and you know it, you know it's it's a it's a deeply entrenched culture of a win at all costs and if something uh, arises to the contrary, they will resist it to their deaths. Um, so I, you know I think I, I think it's an oversight issue where where you have to have these kind of the, where you have to have some some serious consequences for Brady violations and it's also a cultural change where it's got to be about not winning but about about justice, justice. And, and serving the public and I, th- I think it's those sort of prongs that are better the big. Yeah,
0: we actually had a, another forum back in July addressing this issue of prosecutorial misconduct, uh, a, a, a book forum for a book called License to Lie by Sidney Powell, where Judge Alex Kaczynski was also uh, a guest commentator. He was the judge that really put these Brady violations into the news because he's considered a you know right of center judge on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And he said Brady violations are have reached epidemic proportions in the country. So. We covered that one in July, but we can always come back to it. John, did you have a question? Uh, Jonathan Blanks, Cato Institute. Uh, Neil, I've done a lot of research on uh, police misconduct and a lot of things, and I was wondering what you thought would be the best remedy for uh, the blue wall of silence, basically, as soon as a police officer is uh, accused of misconduct, like everyone kind of, uh, you know, closes ranks around them. You know, you see the misinformation in Ferguson where they're like, oh, he had a broken eye socket, and all these things that clearly came from the police department. And do you think there's a good way to like kind of change the culture, as we were kind of talking about, within the police and being accountable for themselves?
4: It's a good question, because actually, this is one of the things that I wanted to do when I went to Baltimore. That's where I was thinking, how, how can we make this change, similar to what you're saying? Then I realized how much the drug war was in my way. But anyway, when you look at the policing profession, like many others, and you look at one hundred percent of the men and women in the department, you have about you know somewhere between you know ten and five percent of those who are really your problem officers. Okay. On the other end of that scale, you you have about ten or maybe a little bit more who are really really good officers who are who are going to go out there every day and do the best that they can with. The community and interact and in, interacting with the community, the folks in 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 between, they're kind of the group that just goes from side to side, depending on, upon which way the wind is blowing, you know, and what's happening in the street. Occasionally, they will do good things. Occasionally, they will do bad things. When with those bad officers, if leadership can never get to a point um, of truly rewarding those police officers that go about. <laughs> their jobs the right way, embracing them for that. And then on the other end of the scale, like we were saying before, even if you lie, if you, if you lie on a report, and there's so many police officers that are administratively charged with false reports, you know, or lying in court while on the stand, we call it testifying lying or whatever, yeah, they should be fired on the spot, you know, Obviously, for, for uh, brutality cases and things like that, you should be fired on a spot. You know what? Okay, you can fight it out in court, but unfortunately, we don't have leaders who have the courage to fire these people and then do battle with the unions. The other thing is, if you can work with your unions to the, to the point where they really want to improve, in, in, improve the professionalism of their men and women then maybe you can actually get the support of the union, you know, and get the union to do a better job at uh, coaching and teaching and bringing their uh, police officers along. So those are just some things that I think you could do.
0: I'm afraid we have run out of time, but everybody here is invited to the reception upstairs, and we can continue the conversation up there. Would you please thank our panelists for a good discussion? <laughs>